Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? This is what history sounds like in Brussels speak. The college also adopted the communication today, which empowers our colleague, Commissioner Hahn, to send a written notification to Hungary pursuant to Article 6.1 of the Conditionality Mechanism Regulation. That was European Commission Vice President Margarita Skinas announcing in a very roundabout way that the Commission has, for the first time ever, made use of a new power that could lead to cuts in EU funds to a member state, Hungary, because it's not upholding the rule of law. There are many hoops to jump through before that could actually happen, and Hungary, of course, insists the accusations against it, levelled by EU institutions, by other EU governments, by international organisations and by NGOs, are false. But it was a big moment, and we'll get into it in more detail in a few minutes. I'm Andrew Gray, Politics Editor at Politico in Brussels, and this is EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. Welcome. Also on the show today, following on from our special edition on the French election, we'll reflect some more on where Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen go from here, and what that could mean for France and for Europe. Le Pen, of course, lost the election, and we'll also reflect on the defeat of another European right-wing populist, Slovenia's Trump-loving Prime Minister Janis Jansha. And we'll dive into a fascinating story from Spain, where the impact of climate change is being used by the far-right Vox party to woo local farmers. And that's changing the political landscape. But first, let's reflect on some of the week's news and begin with Nick Vinegar, editor of our Political Pro subscription service, but also a long-time observer of French politics. He was previously our correspondent in Paris and covered France for Reuters for years before that. So I was interested to hear from you to get a bit of the long view for somebody who's covered French politics for a long time, particularly the far right, particularly Marine Le Pen. Let's start with her. What do you make of her progress over the years and how worried should the rest of Europe or the mainstream, the European political mainstream, be worried about it? Is France moving to the far right or has she moved to the centre? Yeah, I mean, that's what's really astonishing. I really thought after 2017 that it was the end of the story, that she was sort of decapitalized as a politician. And the fact that she was able to regroup, that she retained this huge name recognition and slowly build back and reconfigure her whole platform around very simple, lowest common denominator issues like buying power was really, really striking to me. And to your question about should we continue to be worried, I would say absolutely, because she has built that base 
those voters who are concerned about identity issues, but much more than that about protection of what she often calls les petits gens, little people, that's not going away. And that has only grown and her base has grown enormously by 5 million votes between 2017 and, and 2022. So in a sense, she found this formula of marrying, if you like, the the old National Front vote, more nationalist, more xenophobic, let's say it, with this more general kind of economic concerns, cost of living. I mean, can she keep that up or can someone else come along and, and take away part of that? And that means she kind of loses that base that she's built up. What's interesting is that she's really filed off all the hard edges of her campaign. So the things that were sort of a unique selling proposition in 2017, which is we're going to leave the euro, well, they got rid of that. They got rid of Frexit. They got rid of some of the tougher immigration stuff. And then you see that even where she did retain a little bit of kind of red meat on sort of banning an Islamic veil, well, that turned out to be a problem for her in the final stretch of this campaign. So I really feel like she doesn't need that so much. And then, of course, we had the Zemmour sequence where you had an identitarian, a sort of traditional kind of anti-Islam, anti-immigration candidate who flared and then just quickly sort of receded back into the darkness. The lesson I retain from that is that Le Pen is over time, someone who is there to remain, she has such enormous name recognition that it's very hard to just replace that. So I don't think that she would readily be replaced by another candidate in the national rally. I, I wouldn't be surprised she ran again. Okay, so we should talk about the guy who actually won, Emmanuel Macron, uh, more than 58% of the vote, as you and I were saying before we started. You can almost read this election in two completely different ways, that he won very comfortably, but then again, you can also point out that she got more than 40%, a historic high. So these very different ways of looking at this election and, and lots of different aspects of it. But maybe just start, do you remember when you first ran across Macron or when he first rose to power? Because one of the things that I occasionally forget, need to remind myself, is this is a guy who kind of came from nowhere. He was a minister for a couple of years. I know he'd been in the background before that. He'd been a banker and he'd been in the Elysee as a you know behind-the-scenes guy. But this guy came up with a political party in the space of no time, won the French presidency, and has now won re-election. So two questions. Yeah. Do you remember the original Macron? And, and how much has he changed or surprised you? Yeah, it's funny that you say that. I actually remember the first time I ever heard of him, and it was my bureau chief at the time, Catherine Bremer in Paris, and she said, there's this guy in Hollande's cabinet, and he's incredible. He speaks perfect English. He's open. He is great at media. He knows the files on the tips of his fingers. I have his cell phone. We're just kind of marveling at this person. And, you know, the thing at that time was what the French kind of political journalists slash psychologists were saying is that this is someone who has no sort of superego. He sees an opportunity and he can be He's just unleashed. He can be completely ruthless in pursuing that window, and that's what he's done. Now the question, has he changed? I was very curious about that and asked that question of our correspondents. How has he changed with power? And the somewhat maybe counterintuitive response is he's not changed at all. Mm. He's remarkably the same person, the same type of person as he was from day one. And I think 
that's going to be the biggest difficulty in this term because a lot of people don't like that person. Right. Even though he won, uh, you know, he won 58% of the vote, right? He has this persona that turns a lot of people off that can be quite arrogant, quite aloof, mm -hmm. quite professorial, not exactly a guy with the common touch, but yet, you know, enormously successful as a politician. Let's turn to Europe. So how do you think he is going to shape Europe over these next five years. He is, in a sense, I think, as we said in the podcast the other day, he's kind of the elder statesman in a lot of ways now, even though he's still very young. He's won a second term. The German government is, you know, not exactly going great guns at the moment, if you'll excuse the pun. So, you know, is he the boss now? And if so, how is he going to use that power? How is it going to affect the EU? Yeah, you just marvel at the guy's luck in a way. Uh, he is, he's being reelected at a time when Germany, which has controlled the narrative in Europe for decades about fiscal prudence, is on the back foot. And they're just cornered on energy. And it gives him a huge avenue to press his own policies forward. You know, we, we had uh, David and the team here reported on it this week. You know, people are definitely sort of a little bit braced for sort of too much French and for him to be to sort of move away from somebody who just puts a bunch of ideas on the table that other people can reject to someone who has to be an actual leader, actual consensus builder on the European level to choose achievable targets to deliver rather than saying, well, we're going to create these transnational parties. And I says, no, we don't like that. And then you can say, well, I tried to build Europe and it didn't work. He's actually going to have to put some meat on the bone on concepts like strategic autonomy. What does that mean? On things like digital regulation, all, all sorts of fronts where he is going to have to be more concrete, less of a proposer, an ideator, and truly a leader and a position builder. Right. Great. Nick, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Now let's bring in a couple more members of our podcast panel as we let Nick go off and do other things. Matt Karnichnik joins us from Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hi there. And with me here in the studio is our reporter, Lily Byer. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. Now, I thought we might uh, continue a little bit with something that Nick was talking about, but shift to different countries. And ultimately, Nick was talking partly, at least, about populism, right-wing populism, and Marine Le Pen's performance in the French election. But that's not the only populist news uh, this week. On the same day as the French election, Slovenia's Prime Minister, Janis Janša, suffered a big defeat. Lily, um, maybe help our listeners who don't know Janša understand a bit about him and why he's kind of significant beyond Slovenia's borders. Janis Janša has been involved in Slovenian politics for decades. Uh, he was first Prime Minister in 2004. This is his third stint as prime minister that he is now wrapping up. And he's become quite controversial. Some people have referred to him as a sort of mini Trump in the European Union. He's very close with Hungarian prime minister Viktor Orban. And he is also quite controversial domestically in Slovenia for what critics describe as his habit of attacking journalists and putting pressure on uh, media organizations. Okay, you're being very... Uh polite about it there, Lily, I would say restrained. You know, I don't think 
there is no doubt that he has attacked critics publicly and also attacked journalists doing excellent work, which he doesn't seem to like. And um, he has also come under fire for restricting media freedom generally and particularly the public broadcaster there in Slovenia and a range of other things where people have just basically said that he is backsliding on democratic um, In standards. the judiciary as well, there have been concerns. Right. So a range of, of issues, you know, really around basic democratic standards. The big winner in Slovenia's election was Robert Golob, a former chair of an energy trading company who leads the freedom movement, a relatively new phenomenon in Slovenian politics. He got 41 out of 90 seats in the country's parliament. Right. Matt, I know you took a close interest in this one as well. Um, why? You know, Jansa, I mean, he was a bit of a clownish figure, but he also represented along with Orban, but also along with Sebastian Kurz and other sort of recent political stars in Europe, this sort of phenomenon that we've seen really across the West over the last uh, decade or so with Berlusconi, with Trump. and But I think it's interesting because you, you can see here the kind of ebb and flow that, um, you know, these types of politicians create in their political systems where they tend to be sort of successful for a while, uh, but then they peak and then they and then they implode. And then you have sort of more liberal forces come in, as we've seen now with Golub in Slovenia. And then, you know, well, we'll see how that pans out for him. But it does seem to be a pattern that keeps repeating itself. And I know there's a lot of concern in France about how well comparatively Le Pen did. But if you look at it in a sort of, you know, international comparison, I think most people would say that election was a real blowout. If Biden had got 58%, for example, I mean, that would have been considered a landslide in the US. So I think the Yansa thing also shows just how fragile a lot of these populists hold on power is, even though there's always a lot of pearl clutching about it and saying like, oh my God, they're taking over. There's a, a right wing shift, you know, in X country. But if the system holds, as it has in the United States, as it has in Slovenia, as we've seen, it is possible to reverse the damage that these politicians do. Hungary is obviously the, the counterexample, as we've discussed before, because Orban has been in power for so long and has managed to actually change the constitution and change the system in sort of you know, fundamental ways that help him remain in power, basically. And let's come back to Lilian Orban, somebody you've covered for many years. And he got another bit of uh, bad news today. Just explain briefly what the European Commission has, has done here. So for the first time ever, the European Commission formally triggered the so-called conditionality mechanism. And what this means in practice is that this is the first step toward Hungary potentially losing some or a lot of its EU funding. So now what will happen next is there will be a sort of exchange of letters between Hungary and the Commission. And a few months down the line, we could get to the point where the case will be in front of the Council of the EU, meaning the representatives of the member states, and they would then vote on whether to slash Hungary's funding and how much to slash. 
This is quite unprecedented. This is the very first time that this new mechanism is being used. And I think it's quite a big symbolic gesture from the European Commission, which has really been dragging its feet for over a year now with this mechanism. And I think now that the Hungarian election is over and they have felt a lot of pressure, especially from the European Parliament, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the Commission, felt she had to act. The other country that has been in uh, the European Commission sites in this regard is Poland. But there we don't see the Commission moving at the moment. And Matt, I wondered particularly from your perspective in Berlin, do you see, if you like, the European mainstream going a bit softer on Poland, partly because they need Poland, particularly with regard to the war in Ukraine? We had the German climate and economy minister, Robert Habeck, in Poland this week, you know, basically making clear they need oil coming in from Poland to replace oil that they're getting from Russia at the moment. Yeah, exactly. I think Poland is definitely in a different league uh, from Hungary. It's easier to go after Hungary. It's a fourth of the size of Poland. So, you know, I think that there is reluctance, and we've seen that in, in past years as well, that there's a sense that with Hungary, I think, that you can strong arm Orban and you might have a chance that he will ultimately relent. Whereas with Poland, you know, when I talk to people in Berlin about it, they have the impression that Poland is much more ideologically driven than Hungary and than, than Orban as a person, that as difficult as he is, he's not an ideologue to the degree that Kaczynski in Poland, the leader of the uh, peace party is. But I think at this moment, given everything that's happening in Ukraine, I would be surprised if we see some, you know, really forceful action against Poland in the near future. It's really interesting that you say that is the perspective in Berlin, because I would say that in Brussels, the perspective is slightly different. I've heard many officials saying that they think Polish democracy can be saved and they think Warsaw may come back to the European mainstream sooner or later, whereas Hungary is seen maybe as not a, a totally lost cause, but a cause that is much, much more difficult to to save. And I think in part that is because Poland has a bit more of a viable opposition. It's seen as a country that has a very active civil society. It's very anti-Russian. So on some issues, it is much closer to some of its European partners than Hungary is, whereas Hungary is seen as really a pariah right now. Well, multiple perspectives. That's what we're all about here. I think we'll leave it there. Uh, Matt, Lily, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And one final reminder, if you want more on the French election, you can listen to that special election night edition of the show. And there's much more stories, graphics, newsletters on our French election hub. We'll include a link to that in our show notes. Coming up next, we'll take you to Spain for a fascinating look at how climate change is altering the political landscape there and what this could mean for other countries in Europe. Stay with us. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. 
A message from EPRA. In an era where the green transition and retirement security are top priorities for the next EU Commission, listed real estate is a dual force in addressing these global megatrends. As the world strives to meet the Paris Agreement's objectives, the sector provides transformation to Europe's building stock, significantly reducing our carbon footprint and advancing sustainable development goals. Amid financial uncertainties, particularly around retirement income, listed real estate offers a resilient investment choice, promising stability, growth and positive social impacts. It provides crucial infrastructure Europe needs, from healthcare facilities to sustainable housing, ensuring a greener, more secure future for millions. EPRA and its members are dedicated to leveraging this potential, working alongside EU institutions to foster investments that build and benefit society and Europe. Now I'm going to hand things over to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, who sat down earlier this week with Politico's senior climate correspondent, Carl Matheson. Carl, it's good to see you. It's great to be back on the podcast, Christina. So this is a big week for Politico and its climate coverage, thanks to a new series that we're launching, Anchored by You. Um, Tell us a bit more about that. So Climate Changed is, I guess, a series that's designed to just shift our emphasis in reporting on climate change towards what's happening here and now in Europe. So we often think about climate change and report on climate change in more abstract ways and focused on the future. But this is a thing that's happening to Europe and Europeans right now. And there's kind of two great transformations taking place. We're living in a different climate, but also our economy is changing. So we're going to spend the rest of this year and and on into the future probably just refocusing some of our reporting on getting out there talking to the people who are being affected and uh, and trying to figure out what's happening on the ground and not just the economy that's changing but also the story that you'll tell us today is talking about how the politics is also changing as a result of climate change. You're going to take us on a trip to Spain where your reporting shows how the far-right Vox Party is actually using climate change to gain political power. So before we actually dive into that story, I think it might be helpful for our listeners to understand just the brief guide to Spanish politics. Can you explain Spain's political landscape in a nutshell? Sure. So I guess... Very broadly speaking, Spanish politics has been dominated by two parties, the Socialists and the Partido Popular. And that's particularly true in Andalusia, where I was, where the Socialists were in power from the end of the uh, Franco dictatorship in the late 70s until 2019, when they lost the election to the Partido Popular. So they're 40 years in power. What's also been happening in the last decade is that these kind of political startups from both the left and right and even the centre have kind of bubbled up and been challenging that duopoly. And one of those that has come to the fore has been Vox, the far-right party. Um, They want to strengthen Spain's borders, weaken gender equality laws, very classic sort of populist far-right positions. And in Andalusia, the government this week called an election for June 19th and 
if the polls play out, then Vox is likely to come into third place and that leaves the government of the day, which is a centre-right government, with a decision. Do they go into coalition with their kind of natural enemies on the left or do they go into government with Fox? So take us to Andalusia. Where specifically are we heading? You know, sort of paint a picture for us. I went to a town called Los Palacios y Villafranca, which is about half an hour south of Seville, the regional capital. And I went there because there's a drought that's currently gripping all of Spain, um, but it's particularly bad in the south, which is hotter and drier. And I wanted to just get a sense of what's going on by talking to farmers, talking to people in the streets, because this is a rural town. It's um, you know, 38,000 people. Its economy lives and dies by what grows in the fields. And just to be clear, when you say talk, you don't actually speak Spanish, correct? I don't, no. I um, I was had the assistance of an able translator called Cynthia De Benito, who's one of the, who's a local journalist in Seville. We'd never met before, but I picked her up on the street outside her mother's house just near the airport, and we jumped in the car and went straight to Los Palacios. I'm sort of surprised by how green everything is. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I'm coming to do a, a, a story about drought, and um, yeah. Yeah. Everything's like lush and green. And this is a very bad year, so... As Cynthia explained to me on our drive, Andalusia has traditionally been a stronghold for the socialist left, and particularly rural Andalusia. But now the farmers are turning towards the far-right Vox Party. So Vox is telling them, OK, so socialists were here governed for almost four decades, and they didn't solve your problems with water. They didn't make the infrastructure you need to have your fields working. Besides a draw, we know we were going to have... Spain is drying out. The last winter was exceptionally dry. It was the second driest and fourth warmest since records began in the 60s. Rains are predicted to fail in the coming months. So, you know, you've got a winter drought coming into summer. Everything's really dry already. And... In a way, this is normal. You know, the Mediterranean is typically goes through these cycles, but with climate change, they're becoming more severe. The whole Iberian Peninsula is getting less and less water. It's losing water from the soil. It's losing water from the rivers. You know, in the second half of last century, the amount of water in Spain's rivers fell by between 10 and 20%, depending on which basin you choose. So... There's an overall drying that's happening in the background that just means that every time there's a drought, it gets tougher to cope with. So in the end, it's really a water problem. It's absolutely a water problem, yeah. And it's not just climate change either. I spoke to a scientist called Annalise Brockman. Uh, She's from the Autonomous University of Barcelona. And Spain also has a really long history of mismanaging its water, and building water structures to transport water around the country to dry areas that really mean that they're using water in places that maybe they shouldn't be using water or they're they're using more water than they should be. So it was seen as a 
question of justice and of solidarity between regions that you would transfer water from one basin where there is a river to another basin where there is almost nothing or between rivers that are bigger and smaller. But this is craziness from engineering that comes from Joaquin Costa. And Los Palacios is really part of that history of water solidarity where during the Franco dictatorship, the town was almost non-existent before the 1970s. And then the government brought water in these huge agricultural canals to these dry fields and built the town from scratch and built all these surrounding villages around it and then moved people in from different parts of Spain in order to work in these fields and build families. So, you know, ironically, in a way, this is this whole town was a creation of the far right and it used to be prosperous. You know, people that I met said that, you know, when their grandparents and parents were farmers, they'd have huge families and it was completely expected that, you know, your work from the fields could return you enough of an income that you would be able to buy all of your children homes and they would live in the village around you. So, you know, that was a given at that time, but that's now no longer possible. One of those farmers that I met was José Luis Pérez Moreno, who's a 46-year-old farmer, and his family moved to Los Palacios in 1973. This is a family business. Uh, they fathers and grandfathers were working in this line as well. And they said they are... They and I met up with him in a field just outside the village of El Trobal, and it was really dry and he was standing there pretty stressed out because um, he just planted out a field with sunflowers and it was a big expense. He reckons it was going to cost him about 5,000 euros and he's doing it because sunflower oil has uh, become a really big commodity for farmers in the wake of the Ukraine war and he's hoping that he might be able to capitalise on that. But he needs it to rain um, and he needs it to rain a few times during the spring for the crop to survive. So he was anticipating rain that was coming the week that I was there. But after that, there was no guarantee that he was going to get it. After I met Jose in his field, I hitched a ride back with another farmer, Juan Diego Gavira, and we had plenty of time to talk about everything that's going wrong in that village and how small farmers are being squeezed on all sides. So in the end, the farmer who has been doing this for all his life has is more and more struggle every day to reach the end of the month. These farmers are really getting squeezed hit by the big global changes that have been hitting rural communities all over the world, particularly in industrialised countries. Globalisation and the erosion of their ability to compete on a global market, they're really cross with the EU about the way that they perceive changes in the agricultural subsidy program, the CAP, have advantaged big corporate farmers and landholders over, you know, small family farmers. 
And they're also crossed with the current government, the Partido Popular, partly because that's a traditional animosity because they see them as a bunch of sort of elite city slicker landowner type politicians who really don't have any interest in rural Spain. But their kind of locus of anger is actually still focused on the socialists who they supported for so long. I think after so long they feel that the socialists became a bit of a kind of decrepit institution and they talked about corruption a lot. They talked about... Uh, and this is kind of where water comes in because they talked a lot about, you know, the water systems that used to bring them water and have for 40 years since Franco are now not working and are not as efficient. And they've talked about projects that, you know, got funding from the EU, but then the money went missing and... They never got built and the water never arrived. And so these types of things have kind of fueled their break, I guess, with that traditional duopoly, but also the suspicion of the EU, the suspicion of the international system, the UN. And, you know, that's exactly what Fox is there talking about. So I can understand to an extent then why these particular messages would be so appealing to farmers who are struggling in the way that you just described. But I'm curious, did the people you met with also subscribe to the more sort of ultra conservative policies of Vox, whether it be immigration or any of the other policies? Not necessarily. You know, Juan, who I was in the car with, is clearly frustrated by the economic situation but it seemed like a bit of a lefty to be honest and he just doesn't subscribe to you know Vox's views on immigration and gender politics after being working class and believing really in the social fight that now appears that the solutions to our problems has to come from the far right but he understands why, you know, his neighbours are switching their vote. We ended up after our drive in the in the pub uh, in El Trabal, uh, in this kind of beautiful central square that is, you know, a, a central planning dream. You know, it's got a, a church, a medical centre, a school, you know, everything that this little village ever needed. And there was a there was an interesting moment in the middle of those drinks where I started to realise that actually one was the only person at the table who was not supporting Vox. I just said, "Can we do a show of hands? Who's going to support? Who's going to vote for Vox in the next regional elections?" And every single one of them, apart from one, put their hands up. And that was a moment for me when I was like, "Oh my god!" Because these guys are not concerned about immigration so much they're not you know they're not subscribing to a lot of the views of vox or not wholeheartedly but you know vox is speaking to their concerns we don't agree with the gender or immigration when vox is speaking to farmers they are also coming in and saying that they want to fix the irrigation systems, they want to bring in desalination plants. Like basically, the message is climate change may be coming, but we will invest in your communities and we will make you robust enough to survive. And what does Vox have to say about this? Are they pretty open about the fact 
that this is their strategy? Yeah, all across Spain, in fact. But I met with uh, Javier Cortez, who's the president of Fox's Seville branch, and he told me, obviously, the drought is an opportunity. More than opportunity, this is proving us right. We were, we were talking about this for years now, before the draw. Um, we have a primary sector that... And he said it confirmed everything that they'd been saying, in a way, which was that these communities are being smashed from all sides and they need support and climate change fits into that category of the erosion of their of rural life in Spain. And are these promises that they're making to farmers, is this actually feasible? Is this a viable plan? It doesn't seem like it. According to experts like Annalise Brockman, even before you factor in warming, Spain's water resources are wildly overstretched. And it's obvious that this is impossible and sustainable. Meanwhile, rainfall levels are falling and they're going to continue to fall, perhaps as much as 12% by the early 2030s from now. So Brockman doesn't think that this kind of techno-optimism of, you know, you can just invest in fixing this problem actually gets to the heart of the problem, which is about management and a question really of where you should be farming and that's particularly the case with the Doñana wetlands, for example. It's obvious that this is a trade-off that there's no solution. They have The only solution to save Doñana is to reduce particulate there. Cortez, the Vox president, really pushes back on this idea. The problem in his mind is not climate change. It's the solutions that are being offered, and this is where he gets into the culture war of climate change, where he blames the solutions that are offered by the UN, by European bureaucrats. He talked quite a lot about scientists being co-opted into a kind of globalist assault by cultural Marxists. We do not uh, believe in the climate religion. This is cultural Marxism. This is not the solution for real climate change. We want scientists to make the decision, not the politician making the decision. He actually said, quote, the religion of climate change. En la religión del cambio climático, o sea, es decir, enfrentar a la madre tierra contra el ser humano. Nosotros creemos pitting mother nature against human beings. He said, we say precisely the opposite that an agreement must be reached so that the primary sector can be efficient, so the primary sector can have its aspirations legitimised and at the same time be respectful of the environment. And I think that's the core of his party's appeal to farmers, this optimistic vision for the future, and that's why they're going to vote for them in a month's time. So based on all of this reporting that you've done what do you sort of take away? Is there any sort of larger lessons from maybe places outside of Spain or elsewhere on the European continent or arguably throughout the world that they can learn from this? I think what's happening in Spain has a really clear lesson, which is that climate change, while its impacts are always layered on top of whatever else is going on in a community, creates disorder it creates scarcity, it creates conflict, and it 
takes away the resources that are essential to human life. And those dynamics can feed a politics like Fox's and be capitalised on by these types of political actors. And that's a lesson for the wider world. Carl Matheson, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Carl and Christina for bringing us that story from Spain. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe to or follow the podcast wherever you're listening so you see our newest episodes as soon as they're published. And while you're at it, we'd appreciate if you could click some stars, give us a nice rating, maybe even a review if you can. You can always get in touch with us directly too with feedback on the podcast or ideas for guests or topics. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. Thanks to our intern, Noah Zan, for his help with the podcast over the past few months. We really appreciate all the hard work and some unusual assignments he's undertaken for us. Thanks also to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.